0: I invite you to take your copy of Scripture now and turn to the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 16, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. Uh, We've been in a series in the Gospel of Mark, we've taken breaks at different points, but we've been in a series in the Gospel of Mark for about two years now, and so uh, we're coming to the last chapter, and we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning and then the latter part of the chapter next week, and we'll be concluding our series in the Gospel of Mark. So if you're using uh, the Bible in front of you and the chair in front of you, you'll find the passage on page 853. eight fifty three, And I'll read for us Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through to verse 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Amen. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that You would help us now in these moments to preach Your Word faithfully, to hear it clearly and with discernment. Lord, we pray that You would speak to us by Your Spirit through Your Word. We pray, Father, that You would impress upon us the significance of the resurrection. Lord, we pray as a result we would be filled with hope, we would be renewed, that we would walk in the glory and the power of the resurrection. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, I was at Home Depot yesterday and uh, saw that they already have the Christmas trees out. And uh, some people actually in my neighborhood have, act- have started to put Christmas lights out and have Christmas trees in their yard. Maybe some of you have done that. Seems a bit early to me. Uh, but it does remind us that it's not too far off that we will be specifically focusing on and remembering the birth of Jesus. In our study in the Gospel of Mark over the last several weeks and even months, we've been focusing on the death of Jesus. And we talked about His relational sufferings and physical sufferings as He suffered physically on the cross, but also relationally as He was abandoned, rejected by God and by man. But We understand that we can be amazed At the incarnation, at Jesus, the Word becoming flesh and being born as a baby. We can marvel at the death of Jesus and how He suffered and paid the penalty for sin. But without the resurrection of Jesus, all of it is meaningless and our faith is in vain. We read it this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, where Paul writes, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And so our Christian faith hangs on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. given the significance of the resurrection, I want us to consider two points this morning from our text. First, we'll consider the resurrection of Jesus. And then secondly, we'll consider two responses to the resurrection of Jesus. So let's jump in now and consider the resurrection of Jesus. And so doing, I want us to look here at the narrative and just kind of walk through and see simply what is the passage saying. You see there in verses 1 through 2, uh, we are introduced to three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary, and Salome. They are approaching the tomb and with the particular purpose of anointing Jesus' body. We remember that Jesus, we uh, looked at this back in chapter 15, Jesus was crucified, He died, He was buried, but the burial was hurried because the crucifixion had taken place that Friday between 9 and 3 o'clock. The Sabbath was to begin at 6 o'clock. We're told that when Jesus died, it was evening after He had died, and so there was some rush to get His body prepared and buried because according to Jewish law and custom, the Sabbath would have been defiled had He been left hanging on the cross. In John's account of what took place, in John chapter 19, verse 39, he tells us that Joseph, who owned the tomb, as well as Nicodemus, who had earlier come to Jesus in the night and asked him about spiritual matters, that Joseph and Nicodemus worked together to anoint Jesus' body for burial and to prepare it for the tomb. But it seems that the preparations, because they were hurried, were not complete. And so now the women come in this act of love and this act of devotion to complete those preparations and to anoint his body for burial. In verses 3 and 4, we see that in approaching the tomb, the women are concerned about the stone because it's very large. They don't know how they're going to move it, but to their surprise in verse 4, the stone had been rolled back. And in verse 7, we're introduced to this mysterious young man. That's the way Mark identifies him as a young man. Matthew actually identifies him as an angel. And Mark says that he is dressed in a white robe. This young man tells the women in verse 6 that Jesus has risen. And then in verse 7, instructs the women to inform the disciples. And then we see in verse 8 that the women flee. With the news that they've been given, the women flee in amazement And in fear. Now, what I want us to see here initially is the importance of the historical resurrection of Jesus. Now that We can consider, and oftentimes we do as we come to different passages that talk about the theological implications of the resurrection, we can unpack those and talk about those. But in particular, as we come to a narrative account of the resurrection here, I think it's worth our attention to just spend some time thinking about the historical reality of the resurrection. You remember a few weeks ago as we considered the burial of Jesus, Mark was very intentional to point out that Jesus' death was a physical death, that he literally died. And we looked at that in the text as Mark is careful to emphasize that point. And here as we come to the account of the resurrection, we see as well that Mark is very intentional to point out that Jesus' death was a literal, or Jesus' resurrection, I'm sorry, was a literal death physical, bodily resurrection. There's a number of things that Mark provides for us here, a number of events and details that aid us in combating modern-day attempts to deny the resurrection of Jesus. There's a number of alternate theories that have been proposed. One theory that has been proposed is that the early Christians forgot where the tomb was. So, the idea is that the early Christians believed in the resurrection of Jesus, but the reason they believed in the resurrection of Jesus was because they forgot where Jesus' tomb was. They did, in fact, go to a tomb. They found the tomb empty, but it wasn't Jesus' tomb. In chapter 15, verse 47, though, you notice there that Mark is careful to point out, chapter 15, verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, those women, along with another woman, are mentioned going to that specific tomb to see that he has been raised. So Mark is very intentional to point out that these women, and if you go back earlier in the account, you see this as well, these women witnessed Jesus' death. They witnessed where he was actually buried and saw the tomb, and then they returned to that tomb and gave account of his resurrection. Those who would propose this theory would also have us to believe that not only these women forgot where the tomb was, but that Rome forgot where the tomb was. And that's highly unlikely given the fact that Matthew tells us that Rome placed guards at the tomb to watch over it. They would also have us to believe that the religious leaders forgot where the tomb was. Some have stated that for Rome and for the religious leaders and for Jesus' followers and even Jesus' mother, to forget where Jesus was laid, was buried, would be like us Americans forgetting where John F. Kennedy has been buried. You know, we would take the well, you know, Remember that guy? He was president back in the 60s. He died. He was assassinated. He's buried somewhere, but we don't really know. Well, that's so improbable, it's preposterous, right? And such, I think, is this theory regarding the resurrection of Jesus. The second theory that's proposed regarding the resurrection of Jesus, is the swoon theory. We talked about this um, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the burial of Jesus, but I think given our passage, it's helpful to uh, consider this again. The swoon theory says that Jesus did not actually die on the cross, but Jesus, because of the physical extreme punishment that he was experiencing, that he fainted or he swooned. And then his body, they believed he was dead, but he wasn't really dead, he just fainted. They took his body, they laid it in the tomb, and laying in the coolness of the tomb, his body was revived. Now, you notice there, though, in chapter 16, verse 3, we are told about the the women's concern. And and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And then we are told in verse 4 that the stone was very large, or it could be translated greatly large. And so these women are approaching the tomb, and they are coming to the conclusion that there is no way that all three of them could move the stone themselves because it is so large, and so they are hoping that someone might give them help. Now, those who propose this theory, the swoon theory, would have us to believe that the same man who had just been beaten to the point of death had had nails pierced through his hands and his feet, had had a spear pierced into his side and had hung on a cross for six hours, now because of the coolness of the tomb is revived and finds the strength to remove this large stone and to overcome two Roman guards with his bare hands. Highly improbable, I think. I would have to say that it takes more faith to believe in the swoon theory than it does to believe in the resurrection. A third alternate theory that is proposed is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not an historical event, but actually it was a myth. That the resurrection of Jesus is a myth or a legend that didn't happen, but it just is a story that developed over time. But I want you to notice here in our text that Mark is very clear to present this account to us and to communicate it in such a way as to say that he is intending to communicate an historical event, not a myth or not a legend. So notice his emphasis upon eyewitnesses. And we see this in the other gospel accounts as well. Notice in verse 4 he says, "...they," speaking of the women, "...saw." that the stone had been rolled away. Or verse 5, they saw a young man sitting on the right side. And then in verse 6, see, the angel says, the place where they laid him. Verse 7, there you will see him just as he told you. Do you see over and over again this emphasis on eyewitness accounts? That this is not just made up, this is not just invented, but Mark would have us know that they saw it that it happened in history, and it was verified by eyewitness accounts. Not only that, but we also notice in our text that the uh, particular witnesses that Mark highlights... Do you see that as well? The specific uh, witnesses that Mark highlights are the women back in verse 1, and that is significant. Let's turn to that just for a moment. You see there in verse 1, we're told that Mary Magdalene was there. This is a woman out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons. Mary, the mother of James, was there. This is probably the mother of Jesus. And then Salome, uh, the wife of Zebedee and mother of James and John, who were two of Jesus' disciples. Now Mark is careful to point out back in chapter 15 verse 40 that they witnessed the death of Jesus. So as he records the death of Jesus, he specifically states that these women were present. Then in chapter 15 verse 47, we just saw that he points out that they witnessed where he was buried. They saw the tomb in which he was laid. And now in chapter 16 verse 1, he identifies these women as the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, why is that significant? Well, in the Jewish mindset, the testimony of women was not accepted in public court. In fact, two centuries after the gospel accounts had been written, there's a pagan by the name of Celsus who refers to the resurrection as, quote, the gossip of women about the empty tomb, end of quote wouldn't go over very well today, would it? But you see the derision that this man has and that culture had for the testimony of women in public court. Now, at first, this seems like a problem to the validity of the resurrection in the gospel accounts. I mean, initially you would say, well, how are the apostles, how is the early church going to convince people and persuade people that Jesus has been raised from the dead if their primary witnesses are De facto, considered incredible, uh, uncredible. But it seems at first to be a problem, but rather upon further reflection, it serves to validate the authenticity of the gospel accounts. You see, if the, gospels, if the gospel writers were trying to take a fictitious account, a legend, a myth, and, and persuade people that it was in fact true, they would have never based the whole thing on on the testimony of three women. But what we find is that in all the gospel accounts, the primary first witnesses to the empty tomb are the women. Mark would have us to know that this happened in history, and the reason they record that the first witnesses were women is because they're not making up a story. They're not making up a legend or a myth. They're just recording history as it happened. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical, literal, physical reality. And listen, that means that when we speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're not just simply saying that the spirit of Jesus or the influence of Jesus lives on. Sometimes you'll talk to people about the resurrection of Jesus, and they may claim, yes, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe that His teachings and His influence and His moral uh, power and persuasion lives on in people today. Kind of like Gandhi lives on in his followers. Or Martin Luther King Jr. lives on in many people's fight for social justice. Listen, we claim that that is true. Yes, Jesus' influence lives on in people today and lives on in his followers today. Yes, that is absolutely true. But when we speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and when the Bible speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are claiming far more. We are claiming that he was literally, physically, bodily raised. That his body was in the tomb, and now it is not. That Jesus, his person, along with his physical body was raised, just as the angel says in verse 6, he is not here, see the place where they laid him. And listen, this is the basis for our own Christian hope. Uh, This informs the way we think about our hope as Christians. So when we speak of the resurrection of believers who are united with Christ in faith, we are not simply saying that our influence will live on in our children or our influence will live on in the people that we make an impact in their lives. We do believe that. We hope that would be the case. But we are saying far more than that. We are saying that our beings... Our persons will live on, and even more than that, not only just our spirits and our souls, but our physical bodies will be raised, and they will be imperishable and incorruptible and eternal, just as Jesus' body is. So here we see in Mark chapter 16, an historical account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, given that, I want us to consider two responses to the resurrection of Jesus. And there are a number of things we could say here. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of implications to the resurrection. There's a lot of appropriate responses to the resurrection. But I want us to consider two that we find specifically here in our text this morning. One, the first response is we should respond to the resurrection by trusting Jesus. By trusting Jesus. Look there in verse 7 and we read these words. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, one of the things we should point out is that as the women approach the tomb, and you see this in verses 3 and 4, there is no thought of resurrection here on the part of the women. As the women approach the tomb, they have no anticipation, they have no expectation for resurrection. And although Jesus had told His disciples on three previous occasions, at least three previous occasions, that He would be raised from the dead, the disciples have no hope or no expectation of resurrection. Once again, we see that the disciples are absent from the scene. We've pointed this out before, since the garden... When Jesus is arrested and the disciples fled, they are absent from the narrative. It's almost comical as the women are walking to the tomb. They're thinking, well, who's going to help us with the stone? Well, of course, it's not the disciples, right? Because they're nowhere to be found. Once again, we see their lack of devotion and lack of faith. But despite their faithlessness to Jesus, the angel says to the women... Tell his disciples and Peter. They have been unfaithful to Christ, but now Christ is so faithful to them in that he proclaims to them the good news of his victory over death. And notice how the angel singles out Peter. And we talked about this a little bit when we talked about Peter's denials of Jesus Why would the angel single out Peter? You remember that it was Peter on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He had said to Jesus, Jesus, if if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And yet he goes on to deny Jesus three times. And we read in chapter 14, verse 72, that as Peter comes to the realization of what he has done and that he's forsaken his Lord, we read that he broke down and wept. We can imagine that Peter thought to himself, surely Christ is done with me. Surely Christ is finished with me. Surely Christ will find someone else that can be strong and faithful in the hour of testing. And we can imagine that if the angel had simply said to the women, tell the disciples, that as that message came back to the disciples, and as it fell on the ears of Peter, that Peter would have had great doubts. But am I truly a disciple? I, who have been so unfaithful to him, is this message really for me? And so here the angel, as an expression of Christ's extravagant grace, says, tell the disciples and Peter, let Peter know this message is for him. Here we see how we can trust in the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus that even when we are unfaithful to Him, He is faithful to us. And notice as well in verse 7, the angel says, But go, tell his disciples and Peter, and then he goes on to say, That He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him just as He told you. Now when did Jesus tell them that He was going to Galilee? Turn back to chapter 14 verses 26, and we read there, and when they had sung a hymn, so this is the night in which they are uh, taking the Lord's Supper, and we read, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to Mount Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So even in the midst of Jesus speaking of their betrayal and that they will forsake him, Jesus makes this remarkable promise to them, even though you will all fall away from me, I will go before you to Galilee and you may be gathered back to me there. Now in the hours of darkness in which Jesus was beaten and crucified and he was mocked and ridiculed, all of Jesus' words must have seemed to be a lie and a sham. Everything that Jesus had said now comes into doubt. It seems that everything and all the promises he has made were going to fail. But it's not true. We see in our text that every word, every word that Jesus spoke and every promise he made would be fulfilled. And Here we see that we can trust in the promises of Jesus. Even when darkness falls and it seems like the, the, the words of Jesus and the promises of Jesus are empty, that they'll never be fulfilled, that they'll never come true, we can be certain that Jesus never lies, that Jesus never over-promises, that Jesus never fails to follow through. He is always, always good to His Word. We can think of this specifically as it relates to the second coming of Christ, Right? And Jesus says, I will go before you to Galilee. And as he was died and placed in a tomb, surely they doubted and said, this will never happen. How? How could he meet us now in Galilee? As Jesus had made a promise then and brought it to fulfillment, he has made a promise to us that he will come again. And surely he will be true to his word. So the first response to the resurrection of Jesus that we see here in our text is to trust Jesus. The second response is to fear Jesus. To fear Jesus. We see this in chapter 16, verse 8. Look there and we read these words. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now really, the response of the women is even recorded uh, farther up in the passage. So if you go actually... To verse 5, we see something of their response to the resurrection there. In verse 5, we read, they were alarmed. This is when they come and they see that the stone has been rolled away. And then in verse 6, the angel actually has to tell them, do not be alarmed. And then in verse 8, we read, as I just read for us, they fled for trembling and astonishment, had seized them, and they were afraid. Now, one of the things we should notice we're coming to the end of the Gospel of Mark is that this is a common response to Jesus in Mark's Gospel. The response of fear. So, back in chapter 4, verse 41, and remember that Jesus and His disciples find themselves in a storm, and the disciples fear for their lives, and Jesus stands up and essentially speaks two words, Peace, be still. And Mark tells us that great fear... Those are the words he used. Great fear came upon the disciples, and they said, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then in chapter 5, verse 15, Jesus encounters this man who is possessed by demons. And Jesus speaks authoritatively into his life and frees him from the demonic oppression. And now this man is sitting in his right mind, and he's been restored by the power and the grace of Jesus. And Mark records for us that the people who witnessed that account, as they come around and they see this man in his right mind, they were afraid. And then we come to chapter 5, verse 33. And there's the woman who has the issue with, with blood. And so she's there with Jesus, and Jesus is in the midst of the crowd, and Jesus is moving through this crowd, and she thinks to herself, if I just touch his garment, then I'll be healed. In an act of faith, she moves towards Jesus, and she reaches out and touches his garment, and immediately she is healed. Jesus says, he senses what has happened, and Jesus says, who touched me? And Mark records for us that she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. And in chapter 6, verses 50 and 51, we're told there that the disciples are out on the water and there is a storm. And Jesus comes out and He's walking on the water towards His disciples. And He says to His disciples, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And then in chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, Mark records for us the transfiguration of Jesus. As Jesus goes up on the mountain and He's transfigured in the inner circle of His disciples, He invites to come up on the mountain with Him and they see Jesus in all His glory. And Moses and Elijah are there with Him. And Mark records for us that they were terrified. We see this over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, that an appropriate response to Jesus is fear. If you remember, we hadn't talked about this for a while, but if you remember, the Gospel of Mark is structured in two big sections. Okay, It divides into two big sections. So in the first eight chapters, Jesus is presented to us as the kingly Messiah who holds all power and all authority. It's in the first eight chapters that we especially see Him healing the sick and raising the dead and uh, doing miraculous works. And then there's something that switches in chapter 8. Jesus makes the prediction of His coming death. And in chapters 8 through 16, he's presented to us as the suffering servant who will give his life as a ransom for many. We've been spending some weeks and months now focusing on the reality that Jesus is the suffering servant as we've been considering his trial before the Sanhedrin, and his trial before Rome, as he's been beaten and mocked and crucified like a common criminal. And at this point in Mark's gospel, one could get the wrong point or the wrong idea. One could think that Jesus is weak or that Jesus is out of control. That Jesus is being taken advantage of and at the end of the day, humanity had their way with Jesus. But in the resurrection, we are assured that the suffering servant is in fact the kingly Messiah who holds all power and all authority even over death itself. And therefore, He is to be feared and reverenced, and awed. And so the message of Mark chapter 16, verse 8, is tremble, tremble before Him, for He is risen. And He is to be feared, and He is to be worshipped by all. You know, because we fear Jesus, we don't have to fear others. Because we fear Jesus, we don't have to fear death. Because we fear Jesus, we can have peace and confidence because he rules and he reigns. Do you believe in the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus? If not, then I would ask you how do you account for the record in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, who all bear witness to his resurrection? How do you give an account for the transformation that took place in the disciples' lives as they were utter cowards and so fearful and running for their lives, and in a moment they are transformed and boldly proclaiming this message, willing to lay down their lives for this truth that Jesus has been raised from the dead? How do you account for the explosion and growth of the early church? I would challenge you to consider consider the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you do believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then do you understand its implications? Are you trusting in Jesus? And when I say trusting in Jesus, I don't mean just, you know, passing by saying, oh yeah, I believe in that. But I mean, are you banking your life on His words and promises? when the darkness falls and it seems like there's no way, there's no way that there's hope in this situation, do you cast yourself on His words and promises, knowing that He can never lie? He who promised that He would be raised from the dead and in fact conquered death. Do you fear Him? Do you worship Him? For His great power and glory and great power even over death itself, Do you fall at His feet and confess Him to be Lord? Mark would tell us, Mark presents to us here the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection. And because He has been raised, because He's made good on all His promises, because He's conquered death itself, He is to be trusted and He is to be feared. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who might doubt and struggle with doubting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that by your grace, you would persuade and convince. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to rest in the historical reality that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony, the clear testimony that Your Word gives over and over and over again to the resurrection of Jesus. And then, Father, I pray for each one of us that we would encounter Christ, the resurrected Christ, and that we would, in fact, trust Him. Trust Him with all that we are. And that we would fear Him. Fear Him and that we would worship Him and trust Him. That we would not be afraid of others. We would not be afraid of circumstances, events, even death itself. But that we would trust in the glory and the power of Jesus above all other things. Lord, we thank You and praise You that You have conquered death through Your Son. May we live in that victory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.